0: Well, good morning again. I'm Brandon Barrett, lead pastor here at Grace Covenant, and I'd also like to welcome you if you're visiting. Thanks for joining us this morning as we've gotten together on this cold spring morning uh, to be together to worship our God and our King. Uh, we're going through a series this spring on uh, the second half of the book of Mark, and we're nearing the end as we're approaching Easter and the end of the book of Mark, which will happen at the same time. And this morning we are in, in Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking at 14, uh, verses 1 through 11. If you're using one of your the Pew Bibles there in front of you, you'll find that on page 850. Let me pray for us, and then we'll, uh, we'll read. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we come before you this morning into your word, and we ask that you would open our eyes, open our ears, and open our hearts, that we might hear what you have for us here. Lord, even as we read the pages off this word, uh, off uh, this page, this is your word to us. By your spirit, would you make it come alive? Would you give it its power to do its work in our lives, to change us, to heal us where necessary, uh, to rebuke us where needed to uh, comfort and bring near the love of Jesus to us? We're always in need of all those things. So we come to you this morning, our faithful God, in the name of our faithful Savior and Lord Jesus. Amen. Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill Him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people." And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She had done what she could. She had anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord, and it's given to us for our good and for his glory. At the the heart of this passage, um, and, and, and the thing that really struck me this week as I've been spending time reading this and looking at it and preparing for this morning, was the statement that Jesus makes in response to what this woman does for him, where he says, She has done a beautiful thing. Because she's here in the presence of Jesus, responding to him, giving, giving him this response of her heart and her will and her life. And, and, he, and he looks at that and says, This is beautiful. I find this to be beautiful. It just gets us thinking, you know, what, what does it mean for us to come before Jesus that way? What does it mean for us to respond to him in such a way? As she does, where he would look at us too and say, uh, That is a beautiful thing. How can we experience, as she did, what, what it means to really love Jesus in this way, to love the King? So, as we ask that, we're going we're to look at three things this morning that we see here in the, in the passage. We're going to see here that there is something to treasure, and that there is something to give, and there is something here for us to tap into. Something to treasure, something to give, and something for us to tap into. First, there's something to treasure. Everybody in this passage is treasuring, is valuing uh, something. They're holding on to something as w- what is what is most good, what is most beautiful, what is most life giving for them. We see, and there's several characters here. First, in verse one, we see the chief priests and the scribes, and uh, we see them as they are seeking uh, in the very beginning here to plotting to kill Jesus. Um, this is an example we've come across several times. Again, not my phrase, of a, of a Markin sandwich where we've got one thing happening and then another thing happening. And then in the very end, we come back to the first thing. Okay, So in the very beginning of the passage here, we've got people plotting to kill Jesus. And then in the middle here, we've got this woman who is responding in love to Jesus. And then it comes back at the end to the plot to kill Jesus, narrowing us down, focusing on us on what's happening in the very middle. This contrast of someone who truly loves him. But on the outsides of this frame, we've got the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests, it says here, who are plotting to kill Jesus. Remember, Jesus has come into town for the Passover feast several days prior to this. And His first act when He came into the town was to go to the temple and to cast out uh, the money changers and the lenders and those who are corrupting the worship of God. And he began this time of critique of the worship of the temple, saying essentially they have missed God. They have missed what it means to know Him, to love Him, to follow Him. And he's bringing a change. He is bringing something new. He is bringing Himself. And the people who stand at the heart of the power structure of the temple are threatened, because this means it's the end of the day for them if Jesus wins. And so they begin to plot. They begin to plot his death because they treasure something. They treasure their reputation among the people. And they treasure their status and their standing, the power that they have being at the heart of Israel's worship. They treasure it so much they're blind to the very uh, fulfillment of worship coming among them. God's Son Himself coming in their presence, the Messiah they've been longing for, comes. And they're so blinded by what they treasure most. They can't see him for who he really is. And you see that it has captured their hearts. When you get down to uh, the the very end of the passage there, when it says that Judas comes to them and and volunteers to betray him, you you notice here it says, in our translation fairly blandly, it says they were glad. Literally it says they rejoiced. That something in their hearts just cried out. That that this had, had finally rung their bell. It had done for them what they most desperately wanted. They wanted Jesus dead. And here he was being handed over to them. And they rejoiced. Because the thing that they treasure is going to win the day, right? Their power will be maintained. Jesus will be eliminated. You see, they, like everyone in this passage, they're treasuring something. There are others here, too. That The dinner guests that are at this banquet. This banquet's being held in Bethany. Uh, and the characters here r- remain anonymous in, in John chapter twelve it tells us the same story with uh, some additional details. This is a uh, this banquet is being held. It tells us here at the, at the house of Simon the leper, uh, presumably Simon the former leper, maybe someone who had actually been healed by Jesus himself. But uh, among the guests there are Lazarus, Lazarus and his two sisters Mary and Martha. They are a part of this party as well, and the disciples are there. These guests, what well, what are they treasuring? Notice when. When she performs this act, which we're going to get into in a minute, this, this pouring this perfume over Jesus' hair, the people who were there, some of them, say to themselves, how could she do this? How could she waste this money? And it sort of sounds on the surface like they're just kind of saying, you know, tisk tisk." how, how could she do this? It, the, the words behind it really describe this, this almost violent gut reaction of, this is just wrong. They're indignant. And what they claim is that what they're valuing more is the, the care for the poor. So they are treasuring something here as well, not what she's treasuring. Uh, and then finally in verses 10 and 11, we see the ultimate foil contrast to this one. We see Judas, the one who is also treasuring something, who is rejecting the presence of Jesus and he's searching for something else instead. And we, Interestingly, the, Mark doesn't tell us what motivates Judas to do what he does. And the telling of this in John chapter twelve, maybe the closest we get, it mentions that the Judas was the one who took care of the money for the disciples. So when they gave money to the poor, it came out of, you know, the money that was in his, uh, in, that was entrusted to him, and that he used to skim off the top and keep some for himself. So maybe it's greed that's motivating him. There are others that speculate maybe uh, maybe Judas was a was one of the zealots, one of the parties in Israel at the time, that wanted to see ultimately violent overthrow of Rome. And here he's been listening to Jesus long enough for three years now, and he's down at this very last week. And all he hears Jesus talking about here at the very end is how he's going to suffer and die, not how he's going to expel Rome from their midst. And maybe he's disillusioned with Jesus because Jesus isn't coming through for him the way he wanted him to. Others speculate maybe he was trying to force Jesus' hand to rise up and take the sword. We don't know, but we do know that Judas, whatever he is treasuring, it's not being fulfilled in Jesus. And so he turns his back on Jesus, becomes the one who is going to betray him. But then finally, we have this woman, this other character in the story, who is treasuring something as well. She's treasuring Jesus, she wants him. She's celebrating his presence among them. And she's willing to defy, defy social conventions to express it. I mean, we look at this and think, seems a little strange in our culture that a woman would take a jar of very expensive perfume and break it and pour it over the head of a dinner guest. I don't know. I guess that's what they just did in first century. No, they didn't. This was weird for them as well. This was over the top for them as well. What is she? What is that smell? And what is this enormous wealth that's just being wasted? And poured out because she values Jesus. As we said, we, we learned from John 12 that it's actually Mary, uh, the sister of Lazarus and, and Martha, who's the one that is that is pouring out this perfume on Jesus' hair. And, and Mary's got a reputation in the history, right? Luke chapter 10 tells the story of Jesus coming and, and uh, teaching in, in their home. And while uh, the disciples are with Jesus being taught, Martha is scrambling around the house trying to get dinner ready. And she's looking around going, where, where is my sister Mary? Her job is to be here with me working. She goes into the room where Jesus is teaching. She finds Mary kneeling at the feet of Jesus, listening. And she rebukes Mary. And Jesus turns and says, no, she has chosen the better thing. See, Mary's got a history of valuing the presence of Jesus and seeking that out more than anything else. And that's what she does here. And Jesus gives that kind of enigmatic response when, they, you know, when these people are objecting, saying, what about the poor? And Jesus sounds, on the one hand, maybe like he's dismissive of the poor. The truth is that all through the Bible we see God's incredible heart and care and concern for the poor. And we've seen it in Jesus' Life as well. So in verse 7 when he says, you know, you, you, you will always have the poor among you, but you won't always have me. He's not neglecting the importance of the poor. He is saying there's something that supersedes even that care and that concern. Don't you see that I am here with you? And you will not have me in the flesh always. And she is valuing what is greater in this moment. You see what Jesus is doing? He's reorienting life around himself for His disciples, for Mary. That's what He's calling His disciples to, and that's what He's challenging everyone around Him with this call that, that I must be the center, that life finds its completion in me, that life finds its center in me. He's turning and meant to be turning other them away from their other uh, most treasured possessions, turning them away from greed and ambition and gain turns them away even from uh, the good deeds that are done in the world. On the one hand, you've got the, the scribes and the, and the priests who want to kill Jesus. He's calling them away from that. He's calling his disciples away who's saying, look at all the good things that we are doing. Look at uh, our good deeds in the world. Look at our moral achievements. Jesus is saying there's something even greater than that. See, he commends this woman as if he's saying to her, look, she has loved me above everything else. And that is a beautiful thing. In Matthew uh, chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this. He says, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And you could spin that around here and say, where your heart is, that's where your treasure will be and where your treasure will go as you follow your heart. But there's something a little bit jarring about that, at least might have been on the surface for them and maybe for us as we read that. How, you know, how can that be? I mean, Mark 12, we just looked at it a couple of weeks ago as Camper preached on it, the great commandment where... Jesus sums up the whole Old Testament law and he says this. Here's what the law says. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. What is the single greatest thing we're called to do? We are called to love God above everything. And yet Jesus here is saying, in effect, love me above everything. What about the first commandment of the Ten Commandments where we read this, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods in my presence. There will be no other gods other than me. And here Jesus says, Come to me. Come to me. You see, what we see here is that when we value Jesus above everything else, we are in fact keeping the first commandment and the great commandment. Here is Jesus, God in the flesh, coming and saying, You are to come to me. You are to find your life in me. I am to be your greatest treasure. And she gets it. And she responds with all that she has. See, this is what Jesus means to do in our lives as well. To become not a value, not a treasure, but the treasure. The center of our lives. And what what else is there out there for you and for me? What are the other fires you're warming yourself by? What are the other things that you find yourself pursuing? What are the things that have you in their grasp? What are the things above God that you love? And maybe that plays out just to examine our lives and look at the things that we're willing to spend our time on freely and without complaint. Or our money. Or what we spend our time uh, you know, surfing the internet for, for the next thing that we're going to buy, the next thing that's going to fill us up. What's another way of putting it, you know, if, there's, if there are many concerns in life, that, legitimate concerns that God gives us, and many beautiful things that we are to love, if you imagine those as the spokes radiating out from the center of a wheel, what, what is it that holds all those other loves together? What is most central? What's at the very hub of it? And Christ says, it is to be me. That's what's going to give and is to give your life. Coherence and connection. That's where your love for your friends is to be rooted. That's where your love for your family is to be rooted. That's where you're uh, entering into your career. That's where your care for your kids. That's where your love for our earth are all rooted in a prior and greater, a more central love for Jesus. What's at the center of the wheel for this woman? It is Jesus. That is the thing that she is delighting in. That is her treasure. Well, what happens when you treasure, when you love someone or something? Whatever that thing might be, Jesus or even something else. We find, what happens when you find that your heart has been captured? Well, we find, secondly here, um, that we have something to give. First, something to love, and it's to be Jesus. Secondly, something to give. What does this woman give? When she, who has been captured by Jesus, comes and and comes into His presence, um, she she pours this very expensive perfume. But but the, the the hinge of the story is not really the expense of the perfume. Rather, it's it's verse eight. I think when Jesus pronounces something about what she's done, He says she has done what she could. Not she's. Finally done enough, or she picked a gift that was expensive enough. He said, she, she's done what she could. She has done the thing for me that God has put within her grasp. She has taken what God has entrusted to her and used it in service to me. She's done what she could. And in her case, it was something of immense value. It says that it was worth 300 denarii. That's a year's salary for uh, sort of a blue-collar worker. It was something worth thousands and thousands of dollars. In fact, for her, this, this perfume would not have been something that, that you know, she would have used, really. It's probably been sitting on a shelf in her family home. This might be a family heirloom. This might essentially represent her retirement, all the money she has to fall back on. Because she could, of course, in, convert it into money. That's what the, her critics are saying. Why didn't you turn it in? Why didn't, you, why didn't you sell it so that we could have money to give to the poor? You see, maybe this is all she ultimately one day has to live on. It is her, uh, it is her retirement plan. What does she do with it? She takes it and breaks it and pours it over Jesus' head. This this picture of extravagant love. Of of this, in the eyes of those around her, this incredibly wasteful love. I mean, you know, thousands of dollars and it's gone in an instant. Thousands of dollars poured over his head. But Jesus looks and says... This is beautiful. It's its gift, this devotion that she performs before him freely out of a response to something. But she's not the only woman in Mark even that uh, has responded this way. A little before this in Mark chapter 12, a, a passage that, that we didn't preach on when we came through it a couple weeks ago. But there's there's another story with the woman. It's Jesus is sitting in the temple with his disciples. And they're watching people come forward in the temple and, and give their offer their temple offerings. Dropping the coins in the box. And they see the rich guys come and drop in the coins and the coins and the coins and the coins. Everybody watching? You're right? Look how much I give. And finally, this poor widow comes. And she's got two little pennies. And she drops it in. And Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you see her? She has given more than anyone else who has come today. Because she is given out of her poverty and need. She's given all that she has to live on out of devotion to God. She's given more than all the rest. And he singles her out just as this woman, Mary, is singled out here. She's done what she could. And so you've got these two stories. This woman giving something of immense value. And this woman giving something worth you know, not enough to buy a cup of coffee. And Jesus is saying they are both to be commended. They have both given what they could. You see, the point is not the size of the gift, but the source of their treasure. Here's the way one commentator puts it. In Jesus' sight, an act has value according to its motive and intent. And that, not its material value, is what makes it serviceable in the kingdom of God. When one acts thus, no gift, not even a mere two coins, is meaningless. And no gift, not even a year's salary, is wasted. You hear that? No gift is too small to bring in devotion to Christ. And no gift is too expensive to be lavished on Him. And here again, in the, in the backgrounds, we, we have the foil to Mary hovering back there. She is giving all that she has in service to Christ. At the same time, we've got Judas, not giving wealth, but receiving wealth. Not in love for him, but in rejection of Jesus. As he sets up this you know, contract with the leaders, that he will turn Jesus over. And they will give him money. Turning from Jesus. You see, we are people, in, in response to what we love, we find that we have something to give. We do freely spend. Our time, our attention, our money, our reputation, we spend it on what we value most. So let me ask this. Did this woman, was this a sacrifice for her to give? Was it a sacrifice for her to give this? Well, sort of. But maybe that's not the way she would have really defined it. Um... My, uh, growing up in my house, I w- grew up hearing the story of my, my parents and their uh, dating and engagement. They met on a blind date. They very quickly fell in love and got married not long after that. And my dad uh, didn't have the money to buy an engagement ring, though he wanted to marry my mother. So he sold his car so that he could have enough money to buy a ring for, for her. And, and I imagine you could ask him, well, was that a sacrifice? well, sort of. I lost my car, but I got my wife. <laughs> you know, I, I took this thing that had value, but I went and, and laid it at the feet of something that had infinitely more value for me. Was it a sacrifice? Maybe, but, but look what I got in return. Um, the, the story many of you will be familiar with, uh, a short story by O. Henry called The Gift of the Magi. And in this story, there's this poor couple, married couple, and Christmas is coming and they want to give a gift to each other, but they don't have any money for it. And the... Uh, the husband has, a, has an heirloom gold pocket watch that his grandfather had given him. And his wife looks at that and, and he, doesn't have, he doesn't have a beautiful gold chain that he can use to set it off like it deserves. And she wants him to have that because she loves him. But she doesn't have any money. So what she does is she, she has this beautiful long hair. And she goes to a wig maker and she sells her hair for the money to buy this watch chain for her husband. Simultaneously, her husband wants to care for his wife, but he has no money to give her a gift. But you see, his wife has this, this beautiful hair, and he, he loves it. It's lovely. And so he takes his grandfather's heirloom watch, and he sells it so that he can buy these, this beautiful set of combs for his wife for her hair. Christmas Day comes, and she comes in with her short hair and her gift, and he comes with his gift, and they exchange gifts Here's what the O. Henry says at the end of the story. The Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men, who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privileges of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said that of all those who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Oh, all who give and receive gifts, such as they are wisest, everywhere they are wisest, they are the magi. Were they sacrificing? were they responding in love to their spouse? Was this woman sacrificing? In a sense. But you see, she came out of joy and gave what she had in response to the love of Christ. And you see, when we come to know Jesus, He becomes our greatest treasure. And so all of our life as well is to be oriented around Him. All of life now becomes service and devotion and love for Him. This woman, that plays out for her in this scene that is extravagant and costly and intimate even. I mean, it's, if, if you're honest with me, it makes it a little uncomfortable too. Like, I'm not sure I would have wanted to be at that dinner. And does Jesus call me to take perfume and pour it on His head? Like, what? How are we? He says, no, that's what this woman does. What are we going to do as we follow Christ? How are we going to respond uh, out of love for Him as well? What does it mean for us now? Fueled not by what do I have to do now that I'm a Christian. Instead, rather fueled by this. Fueled by love. What can I do? What can I give? How can I serve? And you see, that question of motivation in many ways is really the acid test of whether or not we actually understand God's grace towards us. And it comes at exactly this point. When we talk about responding to Jesus, is it the question of what do I owe to my master now? Or what can I give out of love for him? Because he has taken me in, no strings attached. How do I respond in love? Not to merit, not to gain something, not to win his approval. How do I give gifts and life and service of love that simply comes out of a response of gratitude because he has done everything that is necessary? See, that very question of motivation here is the one that gets to the very heart of the gospel. Do we get that Jesus has given us all that we need absolutely for free and we can now respond in love? Or are we still caught thinking, Jesus is waiting for me to pay my bill? What's it going to mean for us to respond in this kind of way to Jesus? Maybe it's going to mean open-handed generosity with all that God gives to you. Your money, your gifts, your time. Maybe it's going to be as concrete as taking the Bible's words to heart. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. Uh, Maybe it's going to be something as difficult for you as fasting. Maybe a fasting from food. Maybe maybe from something that you love even more than food. Maybe that would mean for you doing something like this. Taking a time where you unplugged yourself from your technology for a while. So that you could free yourself from the constant bombardment of distractions to your soul. So that you could have the time and space to be with Jesus. And to hear Him. And to pray to Him. Do you see what this woman wanted? She wanted the presence of Jesus. She bring brought her gift to him in the midst of that space and that time. space we often don't make for ourselves. Maybe it would be as radical as leaving your career or your career plans or your home or your security to follow where God may be leading you. Or it may be as simple as re-envisioning the career and home and neighborhood and responsibilities that God has given you here and now and seeing these as the opportunity he's given you to love and to serve him more than we love and serve ourselves you see really you you, you and I we need to be asking this what can i give how can i worship how can i respond in christ uh, to christ again because he has lavished it on us and it is not his payment, but it is to be the response of our grateful souls. How are we going to do that? Look again at verse 6. At Jesus' pronouncement on this gift, this token of her love. And He says, she has done a beautiful thing. Can, can you imagine hearing that yourself? The Je- and, and knowing that Jesus sees all that we do in love for Him and says, it is a beautiful thing. He sees the time when we swallow our pride and take the low road instead, following him. And he says, it is a beautiful thing. He sees the time when rather than turning from conflict, we come to those that we have hurt or been hurt by so that we could actually see reconciliation happen and real forgiveness be exchanged. He looks and he says, it is a beautiful thing our own acts of devotion, our own stumbling attempts to follow Jesus and obey Him, our own forgiving our enemies, all of this, Jesus looks and says, this is a beautiful thing. Well, how how was she able to do that? To treasure something that was Jesus. To give something in response. You see, she first had tapped into something that we must tap into she had tapped into what Christ had given her. See, where does all this come from? This kind of heart level change in which Jesus actually becomes our greatest treasure, treasure. That He becomes what we love, what we're devoted to. That it becomes not simply our duty, but our delight. What do we have to do to tap into this that it might become true for us as well? Well, see, we get this on, uh, in Jesus' commentary on her act. Again, in verse 8, what, what, what does He say that she has done? Says, you see, she is, she is preparing my body beforehand for burial. Jesus knows he is about to go to the cross and death. He's about to be taken down from the cross right before sunset and the beginning of Passover. There will be no time to prepare his body for death. And he says, She is getting me ready. Did she know what she was doing? Maybe. Maybe, unlike all the rest of the disciples around her, when Jesus said, I'm, I'm going to die she thought to herself, he's going to die. Rather than what everybody else thought, this is some strange metaphor for something else. Maybe she heard the hints. Maybe she knew what was coming. Or maybe she didn't. And maybe this was what it is in any case, this act of devotion and love that Jesus says, stepping into this, unbeknownst to you, you have stepped into the greater purposes of God. You're doing more than you even know. You're preparing my body for a burial that is coming. You see, he takes her act of devotion and he ties it into what he, in fact, is doing for her and for us. Going not to life, but to death. Going not to power here and now, but going to a cross. Going to suffering and death on behalf of this woman who gets it. On behalf of the people around her at this table who are grumbling about how the money could have been given to the poor who don't get it for them as well. As we'll see in the Gospels, even maybe for some of the priests and leaders, the very ones who had put Him to death, you see He is going for them to give what they cannot gain for themselves. And again, we see the foil on the outside, the one who will have none of it, who very consciously turns his back on Jesus and walks away so that he might bring death rather than devotion to the feet of Jesus. See, this woman pouring out her life savings over the head of Jesus is celebrating something infinitely more expensive and valuable and sacrificial and beautiful than the thing she is doing. She is celebrating the very life of Jesus that is being spilled for her and that was spilled for us. She had tapped into the beauty and the power of the gospel, God's passionate pursuit of her. His unrelenting, undying, ungiving ungiving up love that moved him to send the son to die the death that we would deserve, to die the death she deserved, so that she could have, so that we could have the love that we could not earn for ourselves. See, she had tapped into this, the very heart of the gospel, A God who has spent Himself for her. A God who has spent Himself for us. She had found it. And she said, Thank you. And I love you. And I am yours. She did it with a jar of perfume and this beautiful gesture and a heart overflowing. But the call comes out to us as well. May we find in Jesus... The very same thing and come with the very same response. Let's pray. Father, we do come before this um, beautiful and unsettling picture of this woman giving all she had in devotion to you. And the truth is, um, our hearts are often hard and unyielding. And maybe we'd be sitting around the table going, Why is she doing this? Lord, we pray that you would show us again uh, the beauty of you. That we would be captured by the beauty and goodness of who you are, our Lord and Savior Jesus. That we would be amazed again that our God would come after us, those who had turned our backs on him and turn us around and bring us back to life. May we see the beauty of that. May that move us to worship to hearts that are overflowing with praise and thanks, to lives that are bent towards not a grudging sacrifice, but lives that freely and generously give in response, because of what you've done for us. You've come to bring us here in this passage not a burden, but ultimate liberation and freedom and joy found only in you. Would you be our joy? We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.